Welcome to Say Granola. Let's make the world a better place together. I'm your host, Rebecca Navarro. I am here today with Sue Chang of the Center for Environmental Health based out of Oakland, California. And we are going to talk about sustainability and toxics in foodware. Let me introduce Sue. Sue is the Pollution Prevention Director at the Center for Environmental Health. She has spent her career working on a variety of environmental health issues that involve researching toxic chemicals and their potential effects on our health. She is passionate about identifying more comprehensive health protective strategies that look upstream and prevent the use of toxic chemicals in the first place. Welcome, Sue. Thank you, Rebecca. Let's take a moment before we jump into our conversation to acknowledge our native lands. I am speaking from Nisanon land. Sue is on Ohlone land. Let's have a quiet moment just to reflect on the people who were here before us. All right, let's jump in. Sue, I'd like to start by hearing about your work. Could you tell us what is the Center for Environmental Health and what you do there? Sure. So I serve as the Pollution Prevention Director at the Center for Environmental Health. It's a national nonprofit organization that has, for the last 25 years, helped lead the growing nationwide effort to protect people from toxic chemicals. We work with parents, communities, businesses, workers, and government to protect children and families from toxic chemicals in our homes, workplaces, schools, and neighborhoods. In my role, I lead our Endocrine Disrupting Chemicals or EDCs for short, in food program work. So <laughs> EDCs is a, they're a class of chemicals that are known as endocrine or hormone-disrupting compounds. And these are synthetic, human-made chemicals that mimic, block, or alter the activity of our body's natural hormones. And they do it at really incredibly minute doses. So this group of chemicals are of great concern because hormones direct almost every function of our bodies from growth and development to processing everything from fear to sugar. And they shape our fertility, our behavior, our physical and mental development, our intelligence, our metabolism, and our longevity. Um, and so we're concerned about these chemicals because studies have shown that they can cause diabetes and obesity, harm our fertility, promote cancer, and cause a variety of other diseases. And so my particular focus at CEH is on eliminating these EDCs from food and food packaging. And um, so right now we're doing uh, a specific focus on working with K through 12 schools to get a particular group of EDCs or endocrine disrupting chemicals called PFAS out of single use foodware. Um, and so we have a project right now where we just released a toolkit for schools called Ditching Disposables to help guide K through 12 schools with finding healthier foodware. This is wonderful. And to clarify, these PFAS are present not only in single use plastics, but they have been also found in single use compostables. Is that, is that right? So yes, we're finding it um, a, a pretty consistently in the fiber or plant-based compostable food service or what's considered was considered compostable, but no longer is being considered compostable foodware. Um, so if you ever have gone to um, you know, a place that has 
uh, bowls or plates or takeout containers that have that fibery look to it. It's called molded fiber, and it's often made of sugarcane, bagasse, or wheat straw, or mix of fibers. Um, up until recently, 100% of the products that we tested that were molded fiber products um, contained high levels of fluorine, which indicates the likely use of PFAS chemicals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. It sounds pretty overwhelming to learn that there are toxics in foodware associated with things that we're ingesting in the name of health and sustaining our bodies. It feels like something that should be illegal. Um, What toxics other than PFAS are in foodware and how did they end up in these products? Or you can just talk a little more about PFAS if that's really the main concern. And... um, I feel like you've done a pretty good job of describing the effects they have on the human body. Although I am curious to know if the things you described are things that, um, if it's sort of a situation where it's like a trigger for someone who has like a, a propensity or a pre-existing condition, or maybe a family history of, of diabetes or any of the other health concerns that you described, or if this is a situation where, exposure to these chemicals can cause in an otherwise healthy person, these problems? Um, yeah. So I guess stepping back, maybe first, yeah, unfortunately there are a variety of different toxic chemicals used in foodware. Um, and then I think we're particularly concerned about this group called PFAS, which stands for per and polyfluoroalkyl substances um, because they are so incredibly persistent and um, they don't break down once they're out in the environment, they stick around. Um, we've heard from some studies that for thou- you know potentially thousands of years and they're building up in our environment, they're building up in our bodies. They've been nicknamed the forever chemicals. Mm-hmm. And um, the thing uh, to really note about these these chemicals is that they've not only been added to a whole range of food, single use foodware products, everything from microwave popcorn bags to fast food wrappers, you know, regular disposable plates, bowls, food trays, takeout containers. Um, it's, and they do that to make them water and grease resistant, but they're also just in a whole range of products that we use every day, including, um, waterproof makeup and, uh, you know, outdoor gear, like tents, waterproof jackets, shoes, um, even it's been found in dental floss, some of them. Um, so there's a whole range as well as if you've heard of the stain resistant, uh, um, you know, furniture and fabric, it's used for that. And in cookware, nonstick cookware. Mm. So it's really a problem of um, the sort of wide range of exposures we're getting from this. And because this stuff doesn't break down easily or go away, it's just continuing to build up from all these different sources. And so the best thing to do with these um, chemicals is to just not use it in the first place. It is not necessary in foodware. We don't have to have it. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. Um, Are there sort of concerns about bioaccumulation? Like if these forever... Um, chemicals are getting into, I don't know, water sources and being ingested by fish that people in turn eat, that we're getting them in our bodies in those sorts of ways as well? Yes, I think the primary source of 
uh, exposure to the PFAS chemicals are through sort of the ingestion, food and diet, um, you know, unless you're in a place that has contaminated drinking water, um, which actually is a number of places around the country. And they've been finding, you know, more, unfortunately, uh, every day across the country. Um, so really, you know, we, we do need to just basically turn off the tap and stop putting these dangerous chemicals into the products that we're using every day. Cause it's so difficult to clean up and manage with once it's out there um, and just very expensive for cities and communities, both for the health and finance, you know. Absolutely. Which I think sort of segues into the next thing I wanted to discuss, which is um, issues other than human health associated with um, the additives to foodware, pardon me, and food packaging. So besides the endocrine disrupting and the other sorts of um, reproductive issues and hormone issues, are there reasons that we should be worried about the chemicals, reasons beyond the human health impact? Um, well, so I think as you alluded to, you know, it does get into our environment. It affects uh, wildlife and others. Endocrine disruptors have often been done and um, identified through animal studies as well as, mm-hmm. uh, you know, through human cells and other other testing that's been done. Um, but for the single-use foodware issue, I mean, th- there's just so such a huge volume of these products that we're going through. And it, it just is such um, a wasteful and concerning practice of, of using, you know, millions of these products and probably even more than that um, per day across the country. Um, just one school district in Connecticut, a small one was using almost half a million uh, polystyrene foam food trays per year. Wow. So just imagine what a huge district like New York City goes through. It's got to be it's got to be hundreds of times that, honestly. Your work is in spreading awareness about these issues and actively working for movement away from the use of them and even regulation away from the use of them and things like that. So what is the present trajectory of the foodware industry with regard to PFAS and other toxic chemicals? So I think um, there is a growing awareness around the issues of PFAS being used in the foodware industry. And um, with there's a combination of things that are happening. So um, for the compostable products, two of the certification bodies that certify products as being compostable in North America. One is called the Biodegradable Products Institute. The other one is the Compost Manufacturing Alliance. So BPI or CMA for short, both of those entities have changed how their standards for certifying these products as compostable and no longer allow PFAS in products that they certify. So that's been a big um, pressure point and change which has been um, very positive. And then on top of that, there are purchasers around the country who are telling the manufacturers or their suppliers or distributors that they do not want these chemicals in the products. Mm -hmm. And so that message is coming out loud and clear. It's coming from government agencies and um, city purchasers and K through 12 schools and a whole variety of um, purchasers. And then there's also 
policies being passed. So there's actually several states that have passed uh, policies banning PFAS in food serviceware. I think the most recent one was just Connecticut. Their bill got signed by the governor just uh, recently. And so I think there's five or six states now. Um, and then there's more bills being proposed. And there's also cities that have been passing policies to restrict PFAS and foodware and taking action. Um, did you did you notice um, during, you know, the sort of darkest hours of the pandemic um, difficulty sort of pushing any of these initiatives forward in the face of real and perceived um, public health concerns about reusables, for example? Um, yes, uh, COVID um, caused some setbacks in the work, but uh, mm -hmm. right before COVID hit, um, you know, we had been talking to a variety of schools and Actually, I don't know if we can talk about the your your previous role. I mean, we can. you were doing amazing <laughs> work at Palo Alto Unified School District on moving to reusables. And, um, you know, together we had made the presentation at the National Green Schools Conference and mm. had received a lot of really positive um, feedback from the school representatives who attended saying, this is really eye-opening and it was something they wanted to work on. And so then the pandemic unfortunately hit and schools were forced to go remote and have everything be takeout, mm -hmm. um, which definitely complicated the work. Yes. But um, I think initially we had to combat this uh, misperception that single-use products were safer than reusables. And um, since the pandemic first hit, we have information and evidence showing that that is not the case at all. And reusables are um, just as safe and actually, in my opinion, safer <laughs> because they can be, uh, you know, sanitized and disinfected properly and don't cause other issues with all the um, waste and disposal and, you know, concerns about toxicity um, for their whole life cycle. Well, I haven't seen numbers yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if school districts that did have to revert to reusables, uh, pardon me, revert to single-use products for their lunch mm -hmm. service during um, remote schooling saw costs go up. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be mm -hmm. surprised. So I'll be curious to see when those numbers start to become available. Yes. And so um, since, you know, it's been a while now since COVID has uh, been around, and we're having a better understanding uh, generally of it. I know there's a, the new variant out, but overall, um, as schools are starting to look at going back in person mm -hmm. um, more regularly, we are hearing interest from schools across the country on wanting to go either back to reusables or bringing reusables in um, for the first time, or, you know, I know originally a long time ago, everybody was reusables, but um, yeah, going back and bringing in reusables um, because I think they've seen and are very concerned about how much waste and um, the potential health concerns connected to all those single use products. Mm -hmm. um, that's great news. I'm glad to hear that it wasn't like this 
really huge setback or anything that that can't be overcome. In fact, sometimes a pause is a really nice way for people to sort of recenter and reevaluate everything they're doing, their values, and actually come out feeling stronger and clearer about the path they want to take. So I'm an optimist. I always like to look for yes. what, what could be good even in the middle of a crisis. Well, I just, I think that's true. I think it's, it has um, sort of paused and caused us to step back and take a, a sort of deeper look at how we are doing things and what, how our choices are affecting um, our health and environment. And so, um, for example, during, since the pandemic, um, you know, we've been working with a school district locally in North, Northern California, Berkeley Unified School District, who's committed to going to reusables. And so we're in the process of working with them. And um, a group Rethink Disposable is doing a great job trying to help make that transition with the USD. That's really exciting. Um, it seems to me that there is one sort of path that needs to be followed to get organizations, both public and private, on the you know right trajectory toward reusables and or, if necessary, um, single-use materials that are free of toxic chemicals and actually recyclable or compostable. But it feels like there's probably a different trajectory for the individual consumer to follow. So um, for someone who is going to be sending their kids back to school in person in August or September, do you have guidance about what they should be looking for when they are making their family decisions about how to participate in serving lunch to their kids? Mm. Well, if they if they are packing lunch for their kids, there's um, you know, reusable products that they could use to pack those lunches every day. Um, a thermos, you know, stainless steel thermos can keep the food warm and, um, is easy to clean and also avoids, you know, the ongoing costs of having to buy all those disposables. Um, and then as far as trying to identify if they, if there are cases where they do need to have uh, any single-use products, mm -hmm. you know, we do have a database at CEH's website to help consumers identify products that do not contain, or that had, you know, low levels, uh, low or no levels of fluorine, which indicates, you know, no PFAS is being used. Okay, that's really great. Um, I think that there's, it's, I find even as an informed person, it can be difficult to navigate the very greenwashed look of products, not just products for serving food, but pro products for cleaning, products for um, doing all sorts of other things like beauty products, whatever. Um, and so I'm wondering if there are certain things that consumers should be looking for on the labels or on the packaging that are alerts, either this is not good or this is good. Mm -hmm. um, so for consumers, there is a useful tool called Clearia. It's C-L-E-A-R-Y-A.com. And it's actually a plug-in. Um, it's like a add-on for a Chrome browser, or you could, there's an app for the mobile phones where if you um, download it 
and are using the browser either on your computer or have the app and are searching through cert for um, certain kinds of products on retailers like Amazon or um, I think Walmart, or there's a couple others, um, Sephora, I think for the beauty products, mm-hmm. uh, it will actually provide an alert if there's a product um, that they identify having some concerning or toxic chemicals in it, and it'll let you know. And I believe there's a feature where it actually um, will offer suggestions for products that don't have the chemicals. Oh, like alternatives? Mm-hmm. Nice. And it also um, has information about the foodware products that we have tested at CEH and will let uh, consumers know that we either found high levels of fluorine or we didn't. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's really neat. And I like that it's an add-on. So it's an easy thing for people to use install one time and then be able to access over and over. Um, yeah. And I, I do want to mention that um, we're really excited about a new certification for uh, single-use foodware that will be coming out later this year. Okay. So CEH and our partner Clean Production Action, mm-hmm. which is another national nonprofit have been um, working on developing something called the green screen certification for um, single use foodware that's going to come out uh, a little bit later this year. And it sets a new safety standard for everyday items like disposable plates and bowls that do not contain toxic fluorinated chemicals. Um, But it also, it looks at all the ingredients. So it really um, empowers, you know, purchasers to be able to identify products with safer chemistry. That sounds great. Do you have a, is there a timeline for that? I don't think you said a specific date just later this year. Yeah, it's been a little difficult to figure out the exact launch date because um, it's dependent on when the first manufacturer is going to get their products certified. We have several that are working on it right now. They're um, close, but um, ideally if all goes well, we're hoping in September. Oh, that's nice. It aligns with, you know, the start of school, which is definitely a cycle I'm well familiar with and well tuned to. Um, And along those lines, I was actually thinking, you know, when we were talking about what's being used to serve students in schools, and I, I felt a little bit guilty, almost like I made it sound that it's out of the hands and the control of a parent who's, who's, child is a student at the school. And I hope that's not how I sounded. I do think that parents should feel entirely empowered to be a part of the process Mm -hmm. that makes those decisions about what is and isn't allowed on any school campus with regard to student health. And um, I know that you're a parent, just like I'm a parent, as well as a professional person. And Um, I think it can feel at times intimidating to know how to insert yourself into Mm -hmm. the sort of business side of how a school district works. But um, I certainly think it's time well spent to forge those relationships and learn as much as you can about who is making the decisions, how they're making those decisions. And um, I believe most people, especially in schools, are fundamentally good and really appreciate Mm -hmm having a, a caring lens on what they're doing. I agree. Um, and I've, I've actually, for many of the schools that are um, interested in making the switch or have already done it uh, to reusables or to safer 
um, foodware product, uh, yeah, foodware items. Mm-hmm. Um, it's often a parent or champion, you know, on a green team or somebody who's helping to drive that. Um, in addition to you know some of the staff uh, at the school, but it it really varies depending on the situation. But I've I've seen all different um, different types of stakeholders step up from parents to teachers to the sustainability staff um, and really shepherd these amazing product uh, projects that are, uh, I think, inspiring others around the country. Yeah, it's, it's great. And I'm really excited to see for where this goes as um, schools go back to sort of normal operations. Um, this has been a wonderful conversation. I always learn so much when I speak with you and I really appreciate your ability to take big concepts and make them really accessible for people to think about and feel empowered to make decisions about. Um, I have one more question for you that is more of a question from the heart than from the mind. I always like to hear from people I speak with what place is beautiful to them where they live? What's the place where you live that you just find absolutely beautiful, inspiring, and you can't get enough of? Mm. Um, there's a lot of choices over here. I feel lucky <laughs> to be living in Northern California in the Bay Area. I feel like I don't have to go very far at all to be inspired by what's around me. Um, there's so many beautiful parks. And even just, um, I feel lucky I have a pretty good sized backyard that, um, we've been working on developing, you know, garden and other things in. And, um, so for me, it's, uh, you know, some of the local parks like Redwood, um, regional park or Tilden park. These, these are all amazing, beautiful places. Yes. And I totally agree with you. Your, your backyard literally and figuratively is absolutely beautiful. I haven't seen your literal backyard, but I have no doubt. (laughs) So thank you. Thank you so much for this conversation. All the best to you. Um, and, um, and thank you to all your colleagues at CEH for the wonderful work they do. Thanks so much. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Let me know what you thought of it on Twitter and Facebook. You can find me at say granola or on Instagram at say.granola. I'm also online at www.saygranola.com. Thanks for listening and have a wonderful day.